And so again, the systemic bias that permeates not only our society, but our government and our institutions is what continues this legacy of pollution in certain communities that have to bear the brunt of our waste and our consumerism. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancocks, and today we continue our series of podcasts on urban resilience in partnership with our friends at Island Press. Island Press is the world's leading publisher of books on the environment. And if you want to learn more about Island Press or their Urban Resilience Project, go to www.islandpress.org backslash capital U-R-P. If you'd like to keep up with us here at Infinite Earth Radio, go to our website, infiniteearthradio.com and subscribe to get weekly updates on the podcast and other sustainability and equity issues in the media. Today's podcast is an interview my colleague and co-host, Fernice Miller-Travis, recorded several weeks ago with Peggy Shepard from We Act for Environmental Justice. Fernice and Peggy have been leaders in the environmental justice movement from the very beginning. Their conversation is a very insightful and thoughtful look at the past, present, and future of the EJ movement. Today, we are partnering with Island Press in their Urban Resilience Project, and we're interviewing Ms. Peggy Shepard, Executive Director and Co-Founder of We Act for Environmental Justice, located in Harlem in New York City. Peggy has been the Executive Director of We Act since 1994, and before that, she was a local community leader and a professional journalist. And Peggy, I I wonder if you could say a little bit more about your life as a journalist before we started We Act. Sure. Well, my my first job out out of school was as a reporter at the Indianapolis News. I was the first black reporter there. That was a great experience. But unfortunately, I couldn't wait to come to New York City, which was always my dream. So I came and worked at Time Life Books and then a succession of magazines like Black Enterprise, Essence, Red Book Magazine. I really wanted to come and write about issues that really affected women and lower income communities. And I really found that I was not able to do that with the consumer magazines at that time. They just were not into those kinds of in-depth, serious articles. And so I took a job as a speechwriter at the New York State Division of Housing and Community Renewal, where I began working with, you know, a number of political appointees who were very active here in New York City. And one day, one of them said to me, you know, uh, David Dinkins is preparing to run the Jesse Jackson campaign here in Manhattan, and they're having their first meeting on Saturday you might be interested in going. And so I did attend and walked out as the public relations director for the Manhattan campaign for Jesse Jackson. And I was floating on air 
<laughs> I've never been involved in anything like that, but I was able to use my writing skills to really help with the public relations. And, you know, it was an all volunteer campaign that first time. So it was really a labor of love. It was exciting. It was meeting political people all over the city and, and New York State. Back at the time, actually, delegates could run, run on slates for to become a delegate. And it wasn't just elected officials picking them. So there was a lot of excitement all over the state as young people, you know, geared up to run as a delegate. And so it was a really exciting time. And it really gave me a sense of different neighborhoods and the types of advocacy systems they had in those neighborhoods that made those neighborhoods more vibrant and healthier. And I was able to then contrast that with my neighborhood in Harlem, where I had just moved and was beginning to be more politically active. And at the time, Bill Lynch, who had run the Jesse campaign with David Dinkins here, in, in Manhattan said, well, do you want to be a behind the scenes person producing others or do you want to be out front with your own ideas? And so I chose the latter. And, you know, even though, Bernice, you say that, Peggy, you don't speak up enough. I think running for a Democratic district leader, which is an unpaid but elected position, certainly really uh, gave me the opportunity to advance an important agenda for this community. So in all the years that I have known you, which has been been more than 30 years, been friends and colleagues. I did not know that you were the public relations director for Jesse's New York campaign and for the 84 campaign. I did not know that. Really? Yeah, I think you were more involved in 88 because we had met by then. Exactly. But it was the volunteers that really made that campaign the dynamic thing that it was in New York. And it's so funny because I met Chuck Sutton, um, the other co-founder. So I should say to our audience that Peggy and I and our late friend and colleague Chuck Sutton are co-founders of We Act for Environmental Justice. So it's really interesting for me to be learning something about Peggy because I sure thought I knew everything about Miss Peggy Shepherd. But I met Chuck in the run-up to the 88 Jesse campaign. So if it wasn't for Jesse Jackson, we might not be here, huh, Peggy? That's right. Exactly. And of course, Bill Lynch. Lord have mercy. We cannot forget the great Bill Lynch, one of the great political minds and strategists of our era. And he really has set a lot in place still. There's a lot going on in New York and around the country that Bill Lynch had his hands on. And we were so fortunate to be in his sphere of influence. So, Peggy, you made a direct connection at a certain point between um, being in the political arena and trying to get people to vote and engage in a political process in an underserved community in, in the West Harlem community in New York, how did you make that link between being in a hardcore political space into the environmental justice space? What was that transition like for you? And how did, how did you make it? Why did you think it was necessary? Well, actually, the transition wasn't difficult because when Chuck and I ran as district leaders, we ran as insurgents. We ran on bringing a new agenda to the community. And we had community residents who, who were, you know, very active and, you know, really asking us to step up and take that kind of leadership and do that kind of education for the community because they just realized that a sewage treatment plant was about to operate along Riverside Drive and the Hudson River. A lot of the key leaders in the community lived along Riverside Drive. And so they were really adamant that Chuck and I had to help on that issue. And of course, you know, neither one of us had really been that involved in environmental issues. And so we didn't really know much about sewage treatment plants 
what they did, how they operated. And so we at first, everybody thought it was about getting people jobs there. And so we worked to actually get 30 people hired. But then maybe six months later, when the plant actually began operating and was fully online, we realized that there were odors and emissions that were making people sick and that we had to take action. So so that the, the transition wasn't a great one because we were already insurgents. We were already bringing a, a new kind of energy. So I'm talking about 1986, 1987. And people like to say that environmental justice is this new thing, but it sounds to me, Peggy, like you're talking about a more than 30 year, that would be 31, 30 and 31 years ago that you and Chuck and then some other people joined you like myself began to really go on this path for environmental justice. And what do you say to people who say, oh, this is, you know, a new concept, environmental justice and climate justice. What do you say to that, Peggy? Well, you know, a lot of people don't say it's a new concept. They say they don't know what it is. And they do sort of think it because they don't know what it is, it's new. And, you know, I say that we've been doing this for 30 years uh, next year, that there are hundreds of groups just like mine around this country doing this kind of work and have been doing it for years. That, you know, we were part of the 1991 first Environmental Leadership Summit, where we helped draft the 17 principles of environmental justice. And we've spent the past 30 years really trying to help support and build capacity for the environmental justice movement around this country. So when you when you were getting started and when you were a delegate to the first National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit, what were the biggest environmental justice threats as you perceived them then? And what do you think are the biggest environmental justice threats now? Well, certainly the, the biggest environmental challenge that we were experiencing here in Harlem was air quality and air pollution. But, you know, in reflecting on your question, I would also say that the biggest challenge was a lack of information about these issues, lack of advocacy around these issues, and systemic racism. And many of those continue to be the challenge today. Although I think we act has, has certainly done our part here in New York City to, to make sure that people are informed and have the opportunity to advocate for themselves. You mentioned that racism was a part of what you were battling in New York. Can you say a little more for our audience how racism is a part of what the environmental justice conversation and movement is about? How is this intertwined with environmental injustice, you think? Absolutely. Well, you know, we understand from a number of studies, and the first one back when we were getting started was Toxic Waste and Race, which was published by the United Church of Christ Commission for Racial Justice. You know, our friend Charles Lee at EPA and, of course, Bernice, our current host, you you were part of researching and developing that report. And, of course, that report has been reconfirmed around this country in so many other research studies that race is the primary predictor of where a toxic waste facility is and that income is a secondary predictor. And so we understand when we look at the history and the legacy of how many facilities have been cited around this country, that oftentimes it's a facility that should have gone somewhere else geographically, but in fact was put into a low-income community because those communities have less information and less political clout. 
And also the land is often cheaper as well. And so we know that systemic racism and bias uh, continues to ensure that the protect the environmental enforcement isn't happening in communities of color and low income, that the environmental protections are more lax, and that more facilities are cited in those communities uh, because of all the reasons we've just discussed. And so again, the systemic bias that permeates not only our society, but our government and our institutions is what continues this legacy of pollution in certain communities that have to bear the brunt of our waste and our consumerism. Have we made progress, Peggy, in lessening the targeting and the disproportionate impact on populations of people of color? from environmental threats. Do you think we've made progress over the last 30 years on that front? I think we've made progress in pockets. I think where you have strong advocacy in those localities, there has been some change. There has been more dialogue and there's been more access by community and community organizations to power, to government, to local advisory boards and to the kinds of groups that are helping to make environmental decisions. So in certain communities, there has been some change, but we also know that no matter how strong your advocacy is, you look up one day and there's another challenge that's coming your way and you have to start and continue that monitoring that these facilities continue to be run you know, in the best protective way. So I think there have been some. I think that there have been uh, regulations at the federal level that help all of us clean air, you know, nationally. But again, there are those hot spots in communities of color and low income around the country that people do not see because they're looking at, you know, a large aggregation of data. And, you know, a lot of groups will say, well, you know, air quality is better nationally, but it doesn't mean it's better on your block. So as we are taping this, the city of Houston is underwater. Uh, Hurricane Harvey is doing devastating damage to the Gulf Coast. It's moving to East Texas and to West Louisiana on the Gulf Coast. And we know plenty of people in Beaumont and Port Arthur and Lake Charles, Louisiana, of course, in New Orleans, Louisiana. We have so many colleagues in the EJ movement who are right at ground zero. And of course, Bob Bullitt himself is in Houston, as well as Juan Paras and Tejas. We have a lot of colleagues and a lot of communities that we are connected to who are going to be affected by this storm. And people are debating whether or not climate change is the, you know, is the trigger. And what I've read, Peggy, is that We can't say, per se, that climate change is the cause of Hurricane Harvey, but we can say that climate change has intensified the death and the impact of the hurricane. So I know you're working, you and we act are working on climate and climate resilience issues in northern Manhattan. In fact, you developed the Northern Manhattan Climate Action Plan that you created with the local community. Can you say more about that, Peggy? And and sort of what's the impetus for it? And what do you what do you hope is going to happen as a result of the development of that plan? Well, I think just in organizing the community so that we can all better understand the challenges that each neighborhood or each block or each building might experience, you know, is an educational opportunity when you reach out to people to say, let's talk about the challenges because it informs them. It informs us who want to support better policy around these issues. And so it was a great process to uh, gather about 
400 people over a six-month period of time to understand the challenges and then to come back and say, okay, so now we know what might you might experience. How are we going to address it? What do you think you need uh, to make sure that we can prevent these really negative outcomes? And so that's the phase we're in at this point. Uh, looking at the policies that that keep us from having energy security, looking at the policies or what's needed to ensure that uh, people are not dying from extreme heat, which will happen every year, and making sure that, that people are prepared for emergencies, that they know what to do, they know where to go, they know where they can get resources, and that the, the city has plans in place that accommodate the solutions we need uh, to address these climate challenges. It's been a great opportunity to develop a plan with the community, which has really, I think, taught us all a lot. And of course, at the national level, WEACT has been coordinating a 40-member environmental justice leadership forum on climate change to make sure that community-based organizations around this country have a voice in Washington on these issues and know what is going on in these issues. So, you know, creating a, a communications network so that people um, know what's going on at EPA, know when we've got to go to Washington to make our voices heard or to brief our legislators. So we've been working at the local and the, the national level to ensure that our communities have a voice in shaping these policies. And Peggy, would you would you say that it was a little easier to get people to pay attention to these issues of climate change and climate resilience, having lived through Superstorm Sandy, something that I think most New Yorkers' minds were completely blown by the ferocity of that, that storm and how much damage it did to infrastructure and just quality of life in New York. Do you think that was hanging in the back of people's minds, Superstorm Sandy could happen again? Absolutely. And everybody, even though, for instance, northern Manhattan wasn't hard hit, the hardest hit areas were out at the ocean fronts in Bay Ridge and Red Hook and Coney Island and the far Rockaways. People also realized that if the tide had been different or if it had occurred at a different time at of day or evening that East Harlem and the South Bronx and Hunts Point, where we have our food hub for the city, um, could have been devastated. So everybody realizes that if there had just been different circumstances, it could have been their neighborhood as well. And so people want to be prepared. But we've also experienced things like brownouts and blackouts in the past when, you know, you have a blackout for, you know, a number of hours and you know, restaurants and businesses, um, all of their refrigerated items, you know, are, are lost or people in their homes uh, without electricity or people in high rise apartment buildings on the 20th floor with no elevator. So people really want energy security. They want to feel that they can, they can help reduce greenhouse gases by using alternative energy sources but also secure their energy future by being able to have a little more autonomy over energy, how they use it, and what kind of energy they use. Well, it sounds like WEACT has taken on a lot of issues, Peggy, from your earliest days of fighting against the sewage treatment plant to now working on energy security at the community level as well as at the national level. What would you say is your organization's theory of change? What are the 
the political objectives that you're trying to accomplish as well as the social objectives? What has all this experience wrought in terms of the, you know, the vision for WEAC and, and what it's trying to accomplish politically and socially? Well, from the very beginning, when we won our lawsuit against New York City, for operating the sewage plant as a public and private nuisance. And we got a $1.1 million settlement for environmental benefits here in West Harlem. From that very time, it, it was funny because, you know, some of our colleagues thought, well, you know, we'll call the Sierra Club and, you know, we'll pay them to do good environmental projects uptown. And actually both you and I said, well, no, we're going to start our own environmental organization up here. We're going to have a mini, you know, NRDC or EDF or Sierra Club up here where we are going to be, where we're going to institutionalize advocacy in, in this community. And, you know, one of the things I've realized working in political campaigns was that we have a lot of social service groups in, this, in communities that are low income. There are very, very few advocacy organizations that empower people to speak for themselves. And so our theory of change is that we've got to have community organizing that supports the policies we need to change. Organizing and policy must go hand in hand. And I think we were one of the early groups that really forged that model of operations. You know, and at first, you know, people didn't feel that, well, you know, if you did organizing, certainly you weren't a policy group. And if you were a policy group, you certainly didn't do organizing. And I think we've evolved people's perspective around that to understand that that is actually the best way. And that sometimes, you know, the very large organizations that are trying to change policy aren't doing that effectively because they don't have that base on the ground. And so we are working from the ground up and we know that community organizing is essential, but that you can't really organize a community to be empowered and advocate on their own without information. So we have a very strong, it used to be six weeks, it's now, now uh, accumulated to nine weeks. We have a nine week environmental health and leadership training program that we put all of our members through. We now have almost 600 members and we're making sure that they are informed about air pollution, water quality, children's environmental health, toxics, climate change, energy you know, the whole host of issues that evolve to have importance at varying times in communities. And so uh, we've also had community academic partnerships because we also realize that our campaigns need to have an evidence base. And so we have worked with research centers at the Columbia School of Public Health and some researchers at Mount Sinai Medical Center as well to basically, you know, help improve and advise the kind of research that's going on in this community and to raise up that data around air quality, around diesel emissions, around flame retardants or, or chemicals in, in our products, to raise that up and change policy. And so we've been able to get policy banning BPA in children's products at the state level, uh, banning flame retardants. And all of that's coming out of the research that we are working with at Columbia and then translating that research into policy that protects our communities. And so community-based research is an important part of our theory of change. And, you know, and certainly with, with the basis of that being that we've got to empower people to speak for themselves, advocate for themselves, and they do that when 
they uh, understand these issues and are able to apply the, the information to their daily lives and work in their communities to make change. You mentioned a phrase that I think is really, really, really important. And I maybe want to end our conversation, our too brief conversation on this. You and I had a wonderful friend, the late Dana Alston, um, who was an environmental program officer at the Public Welfare Foundation. And she really lifted up this call from communities about the power of speaking for ourselves. And I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about that, Peggy. What does it mean to you? What does it mean to the EJ movement? What does it mean for vulnerable communities across the country, this notion of support? I think that people have often looked to leaders to speak for them. And the everyday person doesn't think that they can have a role in actually creating or changing policy or, or really making change with our elected officials and city agencies. That's that's what's so unfortunate, I think, in this country, that regular people don't think they have a voice. And so the environmental justice movement starts with we must speak for ourselves. But in order to do that effectively, we've got to be informed. We've got to um, ensure that we have access to the political process. We've got to be engaged in, in developing social cohesion in our communities and engage in, you know, holding candidates running for office to an agenda that is our agenda. And so we work with residents so that they can have effective testimony at the city council. We take busloads of people to Albany. It's been so gratifying to hear uh, some people say, my God, I've never done anything like this. You know, I loved going to Albany. I loved being able to talk to elected officials about my community and what we need. Some of us who've been doing this work a long time kind of take it for granted that, you know, we're going to go to the city council and testify or ensure that the mayor hears that voice. But a lot of regular people didn't know they could do that. And so being able to support them to do that, to speak for themselves is, um, it, it's everything. It, it's what it's what's going to create the social cohesion we need in this country. Well, thank you, Miss Peggy Shepard, executive director and co-founder of We Act for Environmental Justice. In about thirty minutes, Peggy, you spanned a thirty-year span of time of movement, of activism, of progress, of groundbreaking work, and it's it's been an honor to watch you work, Peggy. Thank you, Bernice. Absolutely. And we've, we've all been in it together. That's, that's what's so great. Thank you all for joining us on Infinite Earth Radio. You can learn more about what we're doing at www.infiniteearthradio.com. Please join us again on our next segment of Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.